Welcome to the Study Rooms podcast, a series of teachings from the Study Rooms class about the Bible and its effect on our daily lives. We hope it blesses you. Ready your hearts and minds for God to teach you. This is part three of our study on our identity in Jesus, a three-part series from the Study Room class series. Let's join Daniel Addo for today's class. So now let's let's look in more detail at some things, um, who we are in Christ, who you are in Christ, um, some of the things that the scripture says. Number one, you died to sin and the old life. You died to sin and the old life. Number one, you are dead. <laughs> That's the first thing that happens to us in Christ. You are dead. Look at Romans um, 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then, Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And then he says, by no means. Oh. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so Paul anticipates the question, what do you mean we are, we are those who have died to sin? When do we die? And he says, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized or embedded into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Again, Paul is not speaking about the act of baptism. We are baptized into Christ by faith. In other words, we are united with Christ by faith. Our baptism is only an outward picture of it. But when you say, I've put my faith in Christ, what you're saying is, I have come to find my life in him such that I am now in Christ. Everything that he did, I did. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. He says, don't you know that all of us who are baptized or embedded into Christ by faith were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So when Christ died, you too died. Your old person, the old person that loved sin, the old person that was a slave to sin, as they were nailing Christ to the cross, that person was receiving a deathly blow. And so the old you no longer lives, the you that loved sin, the you that was a slave to sin, the you that was a slave to people's opinion, that you is dead. You may not feel like it every day, but that's the way you ought to think of yourself. This is where faith comes in, that I must, I'm going ahead of myself, but you must really, really wake up thinking, reckoning, seeing yourself as this. You wake up saying, uh, no, I died. The old Daniel died. The old Daniel that liked to gossip. The old Daniel that was so proud. That person really, truly died. When they nailed Christ to the cross, they were nailing the old person. See that? Romans 6, 6 to 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The old me died when Christ was on that cross and they were nailing him to the cross. I was there, not the me that is now redeemed. The old me that loved sin died with him. It says, Romans 6, 11 to 12. It says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. 
It says, count yourself. That's what I've been saying. Think on yourself. That's what it means to count yourself. Consider yourself. And this is faith. This is where faith comes in. What is more real about you? Now, I know that in your experience, you may be going through a process where the old person is still speaking to you, is still lying to you. But Paul is saying, when you wake up in the morning, think of yourself as one who died. These are some of the ways that we make this union real. You speak, you think in scripture, you look at Christ, you look at what happened to him and say, that happened to me, I died too. Because even though I'm saying you must speak and try, and it's, I'm, I'm, I might be sounding like you try to make it happen. No, I'm saying it is real, it has really happened. But the way that you plug into what has really happened is by faith. Paul says you must think of yourself like this. As you know, the way you think of yourself is the way you will act, is the way you will behave. So there's a change in my thinking. The old Daniel is dead. So by faith, say this with me, by faith, I was united with Christ and I am no longer a slave to the old life. Sin no longer has power over me. I died. That's a powerful statement. By faith, I was united with Christ and I am no longer a slave to the old life. Sin no longer has power over me. I died. This is how we should speak about ourselves, think about ourselves. When Christ was dying on the cross, I was dying with him. The old person is dead. I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm new in Christ. I have here St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine is one of the primary theologians of the church, but he tells a story in his book, Confessions. You know, before he became saved, he lived a very promiscuous life. He was just terrible, like orgies and all kinds of drunken parties. He was terrible. And then his mother had been praying for him for years, and he finally came to faith in Christ and really became serious, wrote books that are still influencing theology till today. But one time after he was saved, Augustine went um, to, to an area where he frequented in his old life. And there he ran into one of his ex-lovers and she saw him and she was so excited. She was like, Augustine, Augustine. And she ran and tried to hug him and give him a hug. And he was very respectful. Oh, nice to see you. Good. You know, he greeted her very well. Oh, good to see you. And he just kept walking. And so she was surprised because the old Augustine that she knew would have hugged her and done some other things. But, you know, this Augustine was respectful. He treated her like a lady and, you know, he kept going. So she said, Augustine. Augustine, don't you remember me? It's me, it's me. And Augustine turned and, and said to her, but it's no longer me. It's no longer me. <laughs> this is the way we must think about ourselves. It's no longer me. I, that, the old Augustine that you're looking for died. <laughs> Augustine was thinking about Romans chapter 6. That was what was on his mind, Romans chapter 6. He, he turned to that woman and said, it's no longer me. She was shook. <laughs> Augustine took as real that he died. It's not, a, it's not fantasy. By faith, when you put your faith in Christ and you are saved, the old person dies. It's a new person that, that, that is alive. And so for Augustine, it was real that it was in his conversation that somebody came to him with an old temptation and he looked and said, hmm, <laughs> I died. <laughs> it's no longer me. You know. So we died to sin. We also died to the old ways of determining value. Old ways of determining value. Look at what Paul said. He says, may I never boast. Take pride, find value, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
through which the world system has been crucified to me and I to the world. Think of yourself this way. The world system of determining value based on money, fame, popularity has died to me and I have died to it. He says, the only thing I want to make me boast, the only thing I'm going to find value in is the cross of Christ where I was saved from my sin. And you see, you must fight for this. I said it there. You must fight for this daily. I hope that's answering some of those questions, that it doesn't always come naturally. We're all in the process. You know, there's a difference between what has happened for us in truth and our experiential living out of those truths. And there is a fight, fight the fight of faith, that I must wake up and really think of myself this way. And when I'm tempted, I must say to myself, no, 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 Daniel. No, 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 no. Ministry will not save you. Ministry will not give you value. It cannot. Find your identity in Christ. Look for scriptures like this one, Galatians 6.14. May I never take pride except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world system has been crucified to me and I to the world. No, I still struggle with some of these things, you know, every single day. It's a fight. I, I didn't come to say this is just some automatic thing that happens, you know. Um, Paul says, life I live in the body, I live by faith which I've told you is an intentional looking away from the world, looking away from ourselves, resting in Christ and receiving Christ as the only satisfying thing, person for our soul. So next, number two, in Christ, you have new life. That makes sense, right? The person that died is not the person that arose. Paul said it, he says, life is no longer me that lives. And the life I now live in the flesh or in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God is a new life. Romans 6 4 says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then the very popular 2 Corinthians 5 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So his resurrection, oh. So he says um, um, that, that the life he now lives is a new life. And this is how we think of ourselves. The person that died in that old life is not the person that rises. It's a totally radically new life. It's the difference between Christ's um, first human body <laughs> and his resurrection body. It's a transformation of personhood. that I must think of myself as new. You know, Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. This is a new creation to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is just a corollary to the other one. You know, the old person died and the new person rises. The old person died, the new person rises. And this is how we think of ourselves. That's who you are in Christ. You're no longer a slave to old sins. You're no longer a slave to old habits. You're no longer a slave to old propensities. You are new, new in Christ, a new person, a resurrection life. His resurrection was your resurrection. Ephesians 2, 4 to 6. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So this speaks about a new power, 
you know, it speaks about power over sin, new values, new conduct, new future, new authority. It says you are seated with him far above principalities and powers. We no longer fear the devil because where Christ is, I am. I have a new life, a new resurrection life. I have a new power over sin, a new outlook, a new conduct, a new future. The grave is no longer your end. That's not the end of your story. That's the beginning of a, another dimension of true life. And so your, your past is changed. Your future is changed. Uh, I believe it's First Peter chapter 1 that says, you know, through the new birth, we have received a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that all we have to look forward to now is new life and resurrection. So your destiny, like the song that says, Christ commands my destiny. What he's really speaking about is that everyone who is in Christ is going to rise someday from the grave like he did. So his story has become the blueprint for our story. The same way he walks in victory, the same way he walks in authority. That's the new life that we have in Christ. Number three, in Christ you are adopted into God's family. Um, you know, in our first birth, our natural birth, we are born in Adam, such that, you know, um, it's, it's called the doctrine of original sin, that Adam's sin affected us. That's why we all have a natural proclivity towards sin. Nobody ever taught me how to lie. My mother didn't call me and say, now, Daniel, I want to teach you about this very interesting concept called lying. I'm going to tell you, ask you to tell the truth, and you're just going to lie. No. Nobody ever taught me how to cheat or be selfish. It just seemed to come naturally. Somebody asked me, did you do it? I did it, but I said, no. Where did that come from? We are all kind of born with this propensity, this bent towards sin because of Adam's sin. We have an enmity with God um, because of that first birth. But in our second birth, and this is what Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus about, he says we are born anew, born by the Spirit, born in Christ. It's a new supernatural nature. And we just spoke about that newness, you know. So that's what we call regeneration, new birth, regeneration, that you're born of God, literally. God gives birth to a new person in you. Now, regeneration and adoption are two sides of the same coin. So regeneration, in regeneration, God gives birth to us spiritually. In adoption, he makes us his children legally. When, when Paul uses the language of adoption, he's thinking in terms of Roman adoption, where um, a man who had no children, or usually sons, because it was a very patriarchal society, but a man who had no sons will look for a son to carry on his name, and that son will have his inheritance, his name, and his whole estate. So Paul uses that language to bring into scripture to show us that one of the things that it means to put our faith in Christ is to be adopted into God's family and become his children. So we have the same status. We have his name. We have entrance into the family. We become real children of God. You know, So all the status, inheritance, and love that Christ has, we also have. Once we were children of our abusive father, Satan, but God has redeemed us through Christ and brought us into his family. And that's good news. Now, I think this is very important to say that adoption in scripture does not carry some of the negative connotations that it carries today. You know, in our, in our culture, sometimes adopted children are treated differently from the 
real children. If you know, in, in, in scriptural terms, adopted children are real children. I'm saying this so that you don't think of adoption in the way we think about it and think, oh, well, that, that means I'm sort of a child. No. When the Bible speaks of adoption, the language literally means son placing, that we are placed as sons. It's a real uh, um, um, real um, fatherhood and sonship. The Bible uses the language of adoption because um, it, it tries to differentiate in a sense between Christ the natural son of God and we who are brought into the family um, from um, um, our old allegiance to Satan. But it doesn't make it any less real. You are not less a child of God because you are adopted. God gives his adoptive children the same access and privilege their elder brother has. And there's scripture to prove that. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. I would say make, makes you children. Again, it's a patriarchal society, and that's how adoption was thought of in terms of men. But it's speaking to everyone. Adoption as children. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. It says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So he's saying the very same spirit that was in Christ is in you. And that this spirit testifies that we are really God's children. That's one of the functions of the Holy Spirit in us. He's, he's to attest to our spirit and to say to us, you, you are really a child of God. In times of insecurity, the Spirit of God says to us through the word, you're really in the family. You're really in the family. He's supposed to give us that assurance. So it's a real sonship or child, whatever, childhood. <laughs> but um, I really think this is important to say. Uh, our elder brother gladly shares his inheritance with us. He is not like the elder brother of the prodigal son. Jesus, our elder brother, finds us in rebellion and brings us home. So Jesus is he's called our co-heir. He delights to share all that he has. You know, in Jewish culture, the, the firstborn or the elder brother was supposed to assume responsibility for all the other children. So when you read the parable of the prodigal son, the writer wants you to, to ask the question, why is his elder brother not going to look for him? In that culture, the elder brother is supposed to go and look for their, for their younger brothers and redeem them and bring them back into the family. What that story is really saying to us is that there is another elder brother. His name is Jesus. And while we, like the prodigal son, were away from home and had left the father, our elder brother came all the way from heaven, found us in our rebellion, brought us home, and delighted to share his inheritance with us. So adoptive children are not less any, are not any less children. Our elder brother is not looking like, you know, in natural families sometimes, the, the natural children look like, oh, so I'm going to have to share my inheritance with this new person that daddy has adopted. Or, oh my goodness, now mommy won't give me all the love and attention. No, no, no. Christ, is, Christ died that we may be a part of the family. Hebrews 2, 11 says, both the one who makes people holy, speaking of Jesus, and those who are made holy, are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. You're really in the family. He's really our elder brother, and he's not ashamed of us. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. But when the said time had fully come, God sent his son, the elder brother, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as children. Because you are children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, the very same spirit. It's the very same spirit. We don't have a junior Holy Spirit. One of the proofs that we are children of God is that he sent the very same spirit of Christ. So he says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So the proof that we are children is we have the spirit and we have the very same inheritance. Amen. So God is your father, your real dad. This is the truth. God is your real dad. All right. Okay. I'm going to speed things up. Um, this is good news for those with absent, abusive, or late parents. Our true father is the loving, powerful, holy God of the universe. I have a quote here from Tim Keller. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Man, I just think we should praise the Lord on that one. This, this makes us pray with confidence. It makes us say, I can approach God at any time. You know, he's my real dad. He loves me. He accepts me. He wants to hear my voice. And prayer is to happen in the context of the fatherhood of God. Glory to God. Glory to God. My real father is not Fred Adu. My real father is Christ. My real father is God the Father. Christ is my elder brother. I have a bigger family than my natural family. You are my sisters in Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Last one for today. I think in Christ, you are righteous. Second Corinthians 5, 21 to 22. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul has those pictures of the Old Testament. You know, before they gave a sacrifice, they would lay their hands on the ship or the goat or whatever as a picture of placing their sins on the, that sacrifice. In the same way, before Christ died for us, God took the sin that was on us and placed on him. And so he made him to be sin for us. And Christ died for us. But after that, there's a second transaction that took place. The righteousness of God, of Christ, you know, he never sinned. His righteous life, his righteous record was also given to us. So we learn that the sinless life of Christ is as important as his death. Because he had a perfect record, God was able to give that righteousness to us. Because he had a perfect record, he was qualified to die for us. He had to be a spotless lamb that would die. So when you read the scripture, have that picture of the Old Testament of the placing the hand on the animal to take the sin of the person and then it's killed. In the same way, our sin was placed on him and his righteousness was given to us. You know, a great exchange took place. That's why the Bible can see there is, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, every religion of the world tells you that you find out at the end of your life. If you, if you, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then when you stand in front of God, you find out uh, at the end of your life. That's not the gospel. 
now there is no condemnation. There will never be any condemnation for those who have received the righteousness of Christ by faith. We are covered in his righteousness. It's not about my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. Yes, those who are righteous in Christ will be holy. Can't say that enough. They will grow in holiness daily. They would want to forsake sin. Doesn't mean they'll be perfect, but God does not deal with them based on their state. He deals with them based on their standing in Christ. That holy, that righteousness that has been given to us. He says, once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, Colossians 1, 21 to 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That is how God sees us, holy in his sight without blemish, no spot, no wrinkle and free from all accusation. When the enemy comes to tell you, remember you did this, quote Colossians 1, 21 to 22 for him. When your conscience tells you, yes, say, Lord, I'm sorry, Father, I'm sorry for doing this or that. You know, there's nothing wrong with um, feelings of, um, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Contrite, being, feeling contrite. I hear some people teach about the gospel and say, you must never feel contrite. I think that's uh, a negation of humanity. If I wrong you, it's, it is normal for me to feel um, contrite. But I think there's a difference between wallowing in guilt and having those natural feelings of contrition. And even, even in that contrition, the Bible says we run to our Father. You know, that's First John 2, 1, who um, uh, um, we have an advocate with the Father, so we don't run away from him. But to sit down and say, I'm just no good, I'm a sinner, I'm just, you know, terrible, God doesn't love me anymore. It's a negation of the gospel. The gospel says that even after you have done it, God is seeing you spotless and clean in Christ. And yes, we want to grow. We want to be holy. And we mess up. We rise and we fall. And that's the next slide. So I say here, God does not look down at you from heaven with disgust. He sees you wrapped and covered in Christ's righteousness and delights in you. Um, we speak about the difference between justification and sanctification. We are justified, and that's a legal term, meaning that the charge against us has been taken away and paid once for all. Imagine that I do something wrong. I, I go to a restaurant and I eat um, meat and I have no money to pay. And Mama Nkechi, the owner of the restaurant, holds me and says, you're not going anywhere until you pay. And then Eva comes and says, oh, that's my friend Daniel. I can't believe he's being held. And she takes the money out of her hands and gives Mama Nkechi um, the, the money for the food I ate. At that point in time, it will be illegal and unjust for Mama Nkechi to still hold me to the money I haven't paid because it's been paid for. That's justification. Christ paid once and for all, for all our sins, past, present, future. Paid once and for all. And so legally, we stand before the Father with no charge against us. It's been paid for. And so I say here, we still sin, and we are in the process of growth. That's what we call sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ in daily experience. There's a rising and falling. But even in that rising and falling, God continues to see us in Christ as righteous. God deals with us based on our standing, not our state. It's not how I'm doing right now. Is I am in Christ, you know. Paradoxically, it is knowing that I am righteous in God's sight that empowers me to keep living holy. 
Justification provides the security necessary for sanctification. The only environment in which true change can happen is an environment of secure love. Anybody that says change and I will love you, that's so difficult. But when he says, see, I'll always be here. No matter what you do, I'll always be here. That is the environment in which we say, wow, wow. That kind of love is what transforms us. That's what changes us. That's why the Bible is always showing us what Christ has done as the impetus or the power to live for him. So let's move forward. I, and here's just a, a list of so many other things with scripture, you know. Um, I've shot over my time, but in Christ you are loved. That's Galatians 2.20, 1 John 3.1-2. You're empowered by the Holy Spirit. I wish I could talk more about that dynamic of the Spirit of God being in us, new life, new power. He, he makes... He applies to our hearts all those things that are true of redemption. You know, it reminds us that we are loved. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Ephesians 1.3. Chosen, forgiven, and redeemed. Ephesians 1.4-7. Sealed and protected for heaven. The, the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as being a seal, um, like a foretaste, guaranteeing the redemption to come in heaven. It's like, you know, there's going to be all these things that we receive in the life to come. And the Holy Spirit is the proof and the guarantee that those things will happen, that they will come. God has given us a foretaste of the fullness of redemption through the Holy Spirit. So we're secure, sealed. Sealed speaks about protection. So the Holy Spirit protects us and keeps us till we make it to eternity. Um, Ephesians 2.13 says, in Christ, we've been brought near to God. That speaks of relationship and being close to him. This is where the temple of God, the same way the Shekinah in the Old Testament uh, um, appeared over the temple and all the priests could not stand. By the Spirit, we have become that temple. All of God's glory in the Spirit is in us. So worship is all our lives now. Everything we do is worship because we no longer go to a temple. We are the temple. We are a royal priesthood. Um, First Peter says, in the Old Testament, you could not have a king priest. That's why Saul died because he was trying to be a king who was a priest. The only king priest was Melchizedek, which the Bible says Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Peter says, we too have become kings and priests. We're in his kingdom. We worship him. You know, we've combined those two offices. We offer sacrifices, but we also govern on the earth in his stead. We are royalty, and we also have a spiritual, um, um, religious um, um, function on the earth and just so much more. You hear all these things in church and you're charged up. Oh my God, you, you're after this meeting, man, you're going to go out feeling, you know, charged up. And then on, on Monday morning, it's like, you know, you're still going back to those old waters and all those other places looking for sat satisfaction. And so I know this it's really happens to me. So here's where we, we, we make it real. There's a difference between our union with Christ and our communion with Christ. You cannot improve on your union with Christ. That happens once and for all by faith. The day you put your faith in Christ, you are united with him. You died, you rose, you are adopted, you're justified, you're being sanctified, you are loved, you're accepted, you're affirmed. All of those things are true. In lived experience though, it becomes more and more real for you through your communion with Christ. Okay, so our communion with Christ deepens our understanding and experience of our union with Christ. Think about a marriage. I've been married now one year and 
a few months, I am not more married to my wife than the day I said I do. The moment I said I do, we were married. We made a union. But in the past one year and some months, our, my understanding, my experience, my joy in that union has increased through communion. So you can't be more or less married. You're either married or you are not. You can't be more or less united to Christ. You are united to him. But your experience, your enjoyment, your understanding is dependent on communion. The same way a couple um, enjoys their marriage through proper communication and um, speaking to each other and spending time, their love deepens. They're still married. They didn't become more married, but their marriage become, became more um, deep and sweet and interesting. So that's the same thing with us, that though we are united to Christ once and for all, Communion makes it real over time. And so that is why we, we emphasize study of the word, prayer, fasting. This, these disciplines are the way that we go into the scriptures and we find our true identity and we speak it and we pray it and we think it. You know, all these disciplines, journaling and writing and speaking to yourself <laughs> to counter thoughts, counter false identities. All those disciplines, by faith, through study and prayer, we sense more that we are in Christ and find our identity in Him. Amen. We hope this class has been a blessing to you. There's so much more we have on this channel and we know it'll bless you. New podcasts will be up every week. Don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new podcasts are uploaded. Thank you for joining the study room.